Well, it is such a privilege to be with all of you here tonight and uh, just to soak in uh, the fellowship and the good conversations and, and really to learn from Sam and to really just be helped on a topic that is of essential importance for all of us. So before we dive into our session tonight, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we come to you this evening and we, we need your help. We are a people who, we are needy and we are designed to, uh, to be needy, to be dependent. We, we, can't, uh, we can't live on our own. Uh, Father, we need your help. We need your revealed word. And so tonight I pray that as we open up your word together and we see your design for sexuality, Lord, that as Sam has already ably noted, that we would see that it is first and foremost a good word for us. So, Father, help us towards that end, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hopefully you have the handout uh, tonight when you came in, and that'll help just navigate you through uh, our talk tonight as we talk about sexuality uh, in the Creator. And again, as Sam has already uh, ably noted, we, we live in this culture where we're each called to pursue our own good. If we maybe added on another one of those moral intuitions uh, that Jonathan Haidt had mentioned, we might add on that moral intuition as well, that we have this desire, we have this, this pinnacle goal that is really put out there to all of us that the highest good for all of us is to achieve this state of personal happiness. The good Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor describes it as this, we live in this age of authenticity, that to really be who you are, to, to dig down deep into your feelings, as, as Sam had mentioned, to, to find out who you really are and to, to just be the best you can be, that, that is really the highest goal for each and every one of us. When you can live most authentically to yourself, then, then you're really living. And so often that, that desire to live authentically then comes with a, a demand from others around you to affirm it. There's probably no other topic, no other issue that this relates more to than sexuality, right? You use your body however you want, you do sexuality however you want, sex is whatever you want it to be. But the problem with this, as we'll note a little bit later, is that if sex is whatever you want to be, and if sex is anything that that you desire it to be, then at the end of the day, sex is nothing. Sex ultimately becomes meaningless. Uh, the Rolling Stone journalist Alex Morris recently interviewed a well-known drummer of a well-known rock band, and he was talking to him just about life and, and life on the road, and they started talking about this drummer's sex life. And listen to, what, listen to what the drummer says to Morris as Morris is interviewing him. He says, quote, it's, it's so much more fun to get sex out of the way and see how you can connect and then focus on who they are as a human. Are you interesting? Are you fun to be around? Great. Sex isn't inherently a huge step. At the end of the day, it's just a piece of body touching another piece of body, just as existentially meaningless as kissing, right? Morris, right, this drummer that he's interviewing, by extension, identifies really the, the root problem for us as we see sex. That if sex is nothing, right, if it's just two pieces of body kind of coming up against one another, if everyone just does whatever it is that they want, right, then, then sex really can't be strong enough, right? It can't mean something enough for you to actually build your entire identity on. And so when we think about that dynamic, I think it actually explains a lot of the cultural despair regarding sex that we find so often in our culture. That if sex is whoever you want it to be with, however you want it, whenever you want it, don't be surprised then when you try to build your identity on something as small as that, that at the end of the day, it's not as fulfilling as you want. 
And I actually think then that it's into this meaninglessness and it's into this cultural milieu that, that, that the church finds itself in that a historic Christian ethic and teaching on this topic actually has something really meaningful and something of essential importance to talk about. But for that, we actually have to go back to God's word. We actually have to go back to the one who actually designed sex itself. I'll tell you a little bit of a story that I think will help you understand where we're going with this. As, as Ken has already mentioned, I have four daughters, and so we watch a ton of Disney movies. And so as Sam was already talking, I wholeheartedly agree that the past 10 years of Disney movies has indeed probably communicated that dynamic of, listen, you just live out your own story, be your own hero. But back, back when I was a kid, it was Little Mermaid, it was Lion King, it was all those movies. And you probably remember there's this, there's this fascinating scene in Little Mermaid, right? She has gone down into her cave of wonder and she's found these forks, right? And she brings them up to the surface and she's talking to the seagull about what this thing is and she's got some pipes and she's got some other assorted goods and and she holds up this fork to the seagull and the seagull somewhat authoritatively, right, says, I know exactly what that is. He says it's a, it's a dingle hopper and he said the, the human beings, they, they use it to brush their hair. And Ariel's pretty excited about this and goes back down into the Cave of Wonders. And we all know how the story goes, right? She gets legs. And at, at that, first, that first luncheon with Prince Eric, right, she's so desperate to make a good impression. And she's seated down for that meal. And she's ready to eat. And she looks down. And lo and behold, right, there is a fork. And she immediately does what? She picks up the fork and she starts, to, she starts to brush her hair with it and everybody is befuddled, right? Everybody's looking at her like, what in the world are you doing, right? And I think for, for many of us, not only in culture, but I would actually make the observation that many of us also in the church today treat sex like Ariel does with a fork, right? We actually think that we know what sex is about and we use it in certain ways, whether it be personal fulfillment or personal happiness, but we actually don't know what sex is really all about and what it was designed for. We actually haven't really done the hard work of going back to Scripture, finding out who designed sex and what its purpose is for. And so really, that's our goal tonight in this final session, is to dive into that. And we'll just follow the storyline of Scripture itself. And if some of you are ready even tonight, right, there's sometimes a little bit of a switch that, that Christians, I find, have to turn off in our hearts when we talk about the Bible and sex, right? Because there might be something in your heart and in your mind right now that says, well, yeah, we already know this. We already know about this. But there's something about familiarity with something as common as this that can cause us sometimes to tune out. And so my encouragement would be as we come back to Scripture that we want to come at it with fresh eyes to hear what God has to say. So if you have a Bible, turn over with me to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're just going to fly through Genesis to Revelation to understand and to hear what God's design is for human sexuality. In Genesis 1.26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
from those first two chapters in Genesis, and we'll go to Genesis 2 in just a bit, we learn some of the most foundational elements of our story, but I want to highlight five in particular, the first of which is this, and it's, it's the most obvious, it's on our nose, right, that, that every single person has a creator, We have a creator, and because we have a creator, that means that we are dependent and accountable beings. And what you immediately begin to see then from this story is that it already, right from the very beginning, diverges with what culture has to say about sex and and how we got here. Dostoevsky famously said, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. And that probably applies more so to sex than any other topic, right? If, if, if there is no God, if there is no creator, then surely then we can do whatever we want with sex and with our bodies. But from the very beginning pages of Scripture, we see, no, indeed, we do have a creator. Not only do we have a creator, but secondly, the second thing flows from the first, we are created beings. And we are created beings, and we are created in the very image of God. We are created differently than every single thing on the earth. We are created in the image of God and created for connection and community. In Genesis one twenty seven, we see not only are we created beings, but we are engendered beings. We are created male and female. Sam Andriatis writes this. He says, the Bible sees gender then as a further gift added upon our biology, shaping our identities and deeply revealing of God's self, right? We don't see gender as a social construct. We don't see gender or gender roles coming as something that, that came after the fall. We actually see that, that gender, right, that that binary of male and female as we read this story is actually just a part of the very creation story rhythm That as we see these beautiful binaries develop in the book of Genesis, whether it be light and dark or evening and morning or waters above or waters below or land and sea, that that our ears are perked up that when we get to Genesis 126 and we hear that God has created both male and female, that it is simply just another expression of his good design. Not only are we engendered beings, but we're also sexual beings. We're sexual beings. In Genesis 1.28, the very first command that God gives to Adam and Eve is what? It is an invitation into what? It's an invitation into being fruitful, into multiplying, into filling the earth. Nancy Piercy writes this. She says, if we are ever tempted to think that sex is corrupt or dirty, we need to remind ourselves that it was God who created it in the first place. Sex is not something introduced after the fall. God pronounced it very good. Sex was designed and created by God, and the very context of that sexual union marriage was also created by God. And so you can't understand that part of the story without understanding the part of the story that sets up the context for where that sexual, that sexual covenant is to be expressed. And so that takes us over to Genesis 2. So if you have your Bibles open, just flip over a page or so to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And you drop down to verse 23, right? You begin to see that all throughout the writing of Genesis, right? It's all been pretty lined up, right? It's prose. And you get to verse 23 and you begin to see that the actual structure of Genesis changes, right? That, that when Adam sees Eve, he literally burst out into poetry. He literally burst out into song. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right? Not only are we engendered beings and not only are we sexual beings, but those aspects, right? Those aspects of who we are get firmly planted within this greater sphere of reality that that, that expression gets re- rooted in the reality of marriage. Todd Wilson writes this. He says, put positively then, all sexual activity all sexual activity ought to express and embody the one flesh union that we call marriage. For this is the God-given purpose of sex. And then put negatively, any form of sexual activity that fails to express or embody a one flesh union is out of step with the teaching of Scripture and outside the will of God. Right? And this is so important to note because, as we saw earlier, right, our, our post-Christian culture has tried to separate relationship and sex. Right? As, as Sam's already mentioned, right, we, we have decoupled right, our understanding of sex from primarily being about procreation to being something that is merely recreational. But from the very pages of Scripture, from the very first start of the story, we actually see that sex is not whatever you want it to be with whomever you want it to be, but that it's actually firmly rooted within this covenant structure of marriage, and that any engagement and any expression in a sexuality is to find itself within that context. Well, as we know, the story goes downhill pretty quickly from there, and so again, you can turn over just a page or so over to Genesis 3. Let's just read verses 8 through 11 together. Talking about Adam and Eve, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Right? It's, it's pretty fascinating that one of the most immediate and one of the most obvious effects of how sin affects Adam and Eve is how they view their bodies, right? We a lot of times think about sin maybe more from this, from this moral vantage point, right, that we see it as more character-driven, but we actually see that one of the very first expressions of sin and fallenness and brokenness that we see is immediately the very straightforward relationship that both Adam and Eve have had with their bodies, so much so that they can be naked and unashamed that one of the very first effects is this deep dissonance and discomfort with their own bodies, Their nakedness, right, which heretofore had not been an issue, now becomes a liability. It's an opportunity for shame and for embarrassment. Commentator Joseph Smith notes that of the nearly 100 times in the Old Testament that nudity is mentioned in the Bible, there's only one time that it's ever mentioned in a positive light, and it's in Genesis 2. Right, that every single mention after that, when it comes to nakedness or nudity, right, when it comes to how we actually feel about our body, because of the brokenness of our world, we realize that that, that integration becomes, becomes broken. Nancy Piercy writes this. She says, the integration of both body and soul was so complete that the body was a full and it was an honest, genuine, undistorted expression of the person But after the sin of our first parents, this body-person unity was torn apart, right? You don't don't have to struggle with gender dysphoria, right? You don't have to struggle with same-sex attraction to understand that at some levels, almost every human being has some type of difficult relationship with their body, right? 
You don't like how you look. You weigh too much. You weigh too little. You wish your muscles looked different. You want to age less. You want to have this hair color, right? There's something about our bodies that from the very, very beginning of how we actually begin to remember ourselves and interact with ourselves self-referentially that, that we realize that there's, that there's things that are uncomfortable about it. And all of that comes, comes back to the fall. From here on out, stories of how the fall affects our bodies and affects our sexuality, they're, they're all over the Old Testament. You, you cannot read the story of Scripture without seeing the full spectrum of sexual brokenness. In Genesis, Genesis is replete with stories from the sexual assault of Dina to incest and prostitution between Judah and Tamar, the attempted sexual assault and the ongoing sexual harassment of Joseph, the adultery of David and Bathsheba, the the rape of Tamar by her brother, Solomon's engagement in polygamy, right? The, The Old Testament is full of story after story of sexual brokenness, and the list could go on. And what's clear is that once sin enters into the world, our use Our expression and our engagement of sexuality is one of the very first things that's affected. As Christians, I oftentimes find that it's interesting that I think a lot of times we can have quite a Pelagian view of sin, right? And what I mean by that, especially as it relates to sex, is that we can can simply view, right, sin and brokenness as merely just the external acts that we commit, right? Just the bad moral sexual choices that you're making, rather than what I would say would be an Augustinian view of sin, right? That at the very core, we are what? We are sinful, broken human beings. And friends, this has significant implications then for how we view sex and gender and everything in between, right? It's not just that some people are out there making bad sexual moral choices or making sexually irresponsible choices. No, your whole being is affected by sin, right? Sin is a condition which results in behavior, so this has implications for how you view struggles with same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. It changes how you view heterosexual struggles with pornography and the rampant culture of adultery that we live in, right? We don't just need rescued from our sinful and broken choices. We need complete and total redemption through Jesus Christ. You don't just need a makeover. You need a takeover of your life. You don't just need some, some rearranging and some better sexual morals, right? Returning you back to some puritanical or Victorian ethic of sex. Your, your very being is broken and tainted by sin. And so we need, we need Act 3 in the story, right? We need to see redemption. And so when we talk about this third movement of the story, again, I'm convinced that, that biblical Christianity offers the only true hopeful narrative when it comes to sexuality. And just, let's, let's break this part of the story up into kind of two parts, and we'll cover each of them just briefly. The first of which is this, that the person of Jesus Christ brings hope to how we view and engage our sexuality, but that the work of Jesus Christ redeems how we view and engage our sexuality. The scene, right, throughout Scripture, right? We've been, we've been tracking along from Genesis 3 all the way up through to the Gospels. And the scene throughout the Scriptures has been what? It's been that even the best of people, they don't live up to what we want or what we need. Everybody that we begin to think, like, maybe, maybe they're God's chosen one. Maybe they're, maybe they're the one that's really going to be the Messiah, that's really going to deliver us. They continually fail and disappoint time and time again. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, right, and we begin to read about him in Scripture, right, our, our, 
our, our ears perk up a little bit because we begin to think maybe this is the person, right? And one of the very first things that we note about him that I think so quickly we as evangelical Christians can push past is that Jesus Christ comes to us in bodily form, right? In John 1.14, the Apostle John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? There's, there's no Gnostic distaste here for the body. There's no ethereal suspension of his being in human flesh. Jesus comes to us as both fully God and fully man. And throughout his life and ministry, right, we know that Jesus lives a perfect human life. And that perfect human life is an embodied life. That perfect human life is a life free of the sexual brokenness and immorality that as readers of Scripture we have just become so accustomed to, right? That even the best of people in Scripture just keep messing up when it comes to sexuality. But Jesus never engages in sexual immorality. He is, as the author of Hebrews says, in every respect as we are tempted yet without sin. Todd Wilson writes, he says, no one was more fully human or more fully sexually contented than Jesus. Yet Jesus never engaged in a single sexual act. Think about it. Jesus never enjoyed the pleasures of sex, an erotic touch, or a lingering kiss. And he never indulged sexual fantasy or lust of the kind that he roundly condemns. And yet the gospels portray a compelling and an attractive person who engages seriously with people in his good company at a party. Yet all the evidence is that he lived as a sexual celibate, right? That, friends, that has immediate impact on how we view sexuality, right? Our culture sets sexuality up as the the pinnacle experience, right? It is the fullest expression of your personhood, right? And yet what we see from the pages of Scripture is that we have a Savior who comes and who dwells like one of us in bodily form, and yet whose sexuality does not become the primary aspect of his identity. Jesus comes to us in bodily form, says no to temptation of all kind, and it is his active obedience in his 33 years of life then that gets credited to our account. And that reality then rightly moves us with hope. Moving on to the second part of the story, right, we think about the work of Jesus Christ throughout Right And through the work of Jesus on the cross, we realize and we understand that our, our sins are redeemed. But, but we need to go a little bit deeper than that, right? We all know that Jesus comes to redeem our sins, but we, we want to search for words in Scripture that maybe access, right, a metaphor that Scripture oftentimes uses to talk about our brokenness as it relates to our sexuality and, and, and see how Scripture actually connects the redeeming work of Christ with that. And so we see some of these terms come up in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Ezekiel. And you can turn over if you want to in your Bibles with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. But one of the, one of the premier ways that the Old Testament prophets will talk about our sinfulness and our brokenness is they'll, they'll use metaphors. And three of the most common metaphors that the Old Testament prophets, three of the most common that they'll use are these, that we are outcasts, that we are naked, and that we are unclean. And all three of those words kind of come to a head in what I think is probably one of the most amazing chapters in all the Old Testament. Ezekiel essentially narrates the life story of the nation of Israel, and he uses the metaphor of sexuality. 
right? He essentially says, listen, your sexuality, it's worked itself out like this. You were outcast. You were naked and you were unclean and I took you in, right? I clothed you. I brought you into my family and I gave you a name. And yet time and time again, you played the whore. You prostituted yourself out to other people. He, he says, and you, were, you weren't even a good prostitute. You actually paid the people to come and sleep with you, right? You, you consistently have, have, have neglected and run away from me, the fountain of living waters, to go and to pursue these other things. But despite the rampant adultery and sexual immorality of Israel, right, we see at the very end of the chapter a God who chooses to move towards them and save them and bring them back into his family, to not have them be outcasts, to not have them to be naked, and to no longer have them be unclean. At the very end of the chapter in Ezekiel 16, 59 through 63, he says this, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, and that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I what? When I atone for you and for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. And this is amazing language, and it's an amazing promise of restoration and redemption to an undeserving people. Right? Talk about being made new. Talk about being redeemed. All that is dirty, right? All that's been marred by our sexual brokenness and by our sexual immorality, all that's shameful, everything that you want to keep in the closet and keep in the dark and in your browser history, right? All of that is atoned for by God in Christ Jesus. Paul resonates with this truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He describes it like this. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he begins to do a huge laundry list of different aspects of our brokenness. But listen to what he says at the, ver- at the end in verse 11. He says, but you were washed, right? That's the first word that he uses. And if we've been paying attention, right, to the narrative, we, we realize that that's a special word, Right? That, that people who are naked and outcast and unclean, right, that, that we need to be what? We need to be washed. We need to be sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, right? Jesus' work, Jesus' work on our behalf on the cross is the history-defining moment that we've all been waiting for and anticipating All that is dirty, all that is clean, all that is shameful is atoned for and washed clean and sanctified by Jesus' death on the cross, right? So if we summarize those two points, this part of the story, right, the person of Jesus Christ brings us hope because he comes to us in bodily form and he suffers all kinds of temptation, even sexual temptation, yet he does it without sin. And through the work of Jesus Christ, we are given new life, and part of that new life is it is a cleansing, it is a washing, it is a new life, it is new opportunity for us as believers. It takes us really to the last part of the story, the consummation. I like how Andrew Walker sums it up. He says, we're all living, all of us are living in this Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on the trajectory to a Revelation 21 future, Right? And if we know the storyline of Scripture, then we begin to understand and begin to to resonate with what Walker is saying there, right? That that we realize that we are people that are that are sojourners and exiles, that we that we are living for a world to come. And what is that world like? Right? What is what does God's word have to tell us about this particular world that we are waiting for? I like how the prophet Isaiah describes that in Isaiah sixty five, seventeen. 
Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Or listen to how the Apostle John describes it in Revelation 21. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Right? That, that is a glorious truth, even you know, aside from our sexuality, but especially as it relates to our sexuality, that is a wonderful truth for every one of us. It's a glorious truth for every single person in this room who has been a victim of sexual abuse and sexual assault. If you've been a victim of rape, if you've been a victim of somebody else's sexual immorality and you have been on the receiving end of sexual brokenness, then, then the gospel storyline that we've just plotted out, right, it contains great hope for you. It's a glorious struggle for every person who struggles with sexual sin. It's a glorious truth for everybody who struggles with disordered sexual desires. It's a glorious truth for people who are sexually frustrated, sexually disappointed, right? That we are headed and we are moving forward eschatologically into what? Into a new heaven and a new earth where the former things will pass away where God is in the business of making all things new. Friends, that is the sweeping story. That's the sweeping story of who God is and what he has designed us for. And specifically, as we think about the topic of sexuality, it is absolutely necessary to remember and to rehearse God's story. And if we take it all the way back to, to Ariel and the Little Mermaid, right, I fear that far too many people in the church, we, we treat sex like Ariel did with the fork, right? You, you think you know what it's for, but you really don't, right? You think you know God's story and God's intentions as it relates to sexuality, but in many ways you're misusing it. Paul says this in Colossians chapter one. He says, he, talking about Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And what? That last prepositional phrase is so important. For him. Everything was created for him. I love how Jackie Hill Perry relates it to this wider topic of sexuality. She says, my hands, my head, my face, my legs, my hips, my hormones, my private parts, my voice, my feet, my fingers, my feelings were all made by him and for him. Apparently, this body was never mine to begin with. It was given to me from somebody for somebody, somebody who had made it for glory and not for shame. Right? And when we think about our bodies, when we think about sexuality, right, Sam has already done such a wonderful job at showing, right, what, what culture has communicated to us about, about sex and about the culture-shaping influence that, that is so pervasive right now as it relates to sex. But that's, 
That's why God's word still, friends, is so essential, right? We have to come back to what God has to say for us about sex. Otherwise, we are bound to misuse it. Just in the final few minutes that we have, I just want to offer a few application points in light of this story. We've already mentioned the first one even just now briefly, and that's this. If you don't know the story of God's purpose for sexuality, you are bound to misuse it. And I'm convinced that Christians are at two disadvantages here, that we know this story, but that many of us don't live in light of it right? You have information, but you've not applied it. And so information without application doesn't lead to transformation. You might think that you know what the story is about, but you, you haven't actually allowed that to change your life, right? You haven't actually allowed the ethic of, of God's sexuality to actually impact how you use it. Secondly, I think we don't realize how we have been so formed by the sexual culture around us in the competing story of sexuality that it offers over to us, right? Culture is shaping us and impacting us more than, more than you think, right? Again, going back to what Dostoevsky said, he says, you know, if there is no God, then everything is permissible, right? If we don't have a framework where there is a God and that he does have a design for sexuality and that he has the ability and the right to call us to live in light of that design, well, if you get rid of him, then yeah, you can do whatever it is that you want. But there is a God and there is scripture and that scripture testifies to say, listen, there is a plan and a design for your sexuality and live in light of it. Nancy Piercy writes this. She says, when we make sexual decisions, we are not just deciding whether to follow a few rules. We are expressing our view of the cosmos and human nature. And I think sometimes that big picture, that big picture narrative, that transcendent theme of who we are and what we were designed to live for, we have lost that, right? We think, oh, it's just about my sexual choices or about so-and-so's sexual choices. It's so much more than that. In the way that we live our life as it relates to sex in every other area, we are testifying to our view of who God is and what he has designed us for. Secondly, second application is this, sex is good, but it's not the most important thing about you, right? Sex is good, but it's not the ultimate thing in life to be pursued. And again, for our unmarried and for our celibate friends, this is good news. Our humanity and our identity as people aren't dependent on whether or not we have sex, but our humanity and our goal in life is to be a people who are known and known by Christ, David Pallison writes this. He says, Jesus brings sanity and good sense to sex. He starts by making sex of secondary importance. Sex is a real, but it's a secondary good. God neither overvalues nor degrades the good things that he has made. But by realigning whom you most love, he makes all secondary loves, including our sexuality, flourish in their proper place. And that might mean containing sexual expression during a long season, even a lifetime of purposeful celibacy as a single adult, Jesus himself lived in this way. Thirdly, the third point that we can make application-wise is this, is your sexuality is not your identity. Your identity informs your sexuality, right? Our, our culture says, listen, your identity is based off of your sexuality, but, but we know that at the end of the day, this is ultimately problematic, Right? If sex can mean and be anything that you want, right? If sex is ultimately meaningless, 
right? That's what, that's in that interview with Rolling Stone magazine and the drummer, right? He says, listen, sex is nothing. It's meaningless. It's just two pieces of body touching one another. Is that really stable enough then for you to build your entire identity on? Is that something that you want to center and focus the entire, the entire existence on? Something that is as existentially meaningless as sex. Tim Keller writes this. He says, part of having an identity is having a stable core sense of who you are day in and day out in different settings and different times. And that's why the traditional way of forging an identity through connection with something solid outside the individual self-made sense. But if your identity is just your desires, they're going to be changing all the time, right? And friends, that's where, again, the biblical story is so important because the biblical story says, yes, you are an engendered being, a relational being, a sexual being, but the most important part about who you are is that you are a human being created in God's image, designed to live in a relationship with him. Pallison writes this, he says, the biblical truth is this, is that God gives you and bestows upon you a new identity and salvation. And friends, that is the beauty and the glorious message of the gospel is that the identity that we, that, that we have and that we preach and that we proclaim is, is an identity that is received and not achieved. It's not something that we have to work towards or that we have to find the self-expression and the voice to, to actually have and to own, but it's actually an identity that God bestows and gives to us. And that, that is, I am convinced, that is good news for our culture Right, when you begin to have conversations with people who are sexually frustrated or, or who are coming from places of sexual brokenness, they're, they're actually looking for something to center and to locate their identity on that's much more stable and that's much more solid than just their sexuality or just the sexual things in their life. But if we don't have that biblical conviction, if we're not both biblically convinced and the same was saying emotionally convinced of this message, then I think time and time again we'll fail to actually know the right questions to ask, know how to open up the story of Scripture and not just be talking about do's and don'ts as it relates to sex, but actually talk about who we were designed and created to be. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening, and as we come to your word, we realize that it is a good word, that you look at sex, you look at your creation, and that you, you proclaim it to be very good. And Father, we confess to you that oftentimes we have allowed a culture to influence our thinking on the topic of sex more than we have allowed your story to inform our understanding and our practice and our engagement and our expression of sexuality. And so, Father, as we prayed at the very beginning, we need your help. Father, we need eyes to see people as you see them. We need help with our words so that our words and our manner and our interactions with people who disagree with us, who hold to different views, that we would be compassionate but convicted. Father, that we would be biblically convinced and emotionally convinced of the goodness of your story. Father, help us towards that end. Father, help us to be Uh, become more skilled in these conversations. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.